This is Pretty Much Pop, a culture podcast where we do not approve of murder. Today we're discussing the mysteries of Agatha Christie and their many adaptations for film and television in light of the recent release of the Kenneth Branagh and Michael Green joint Death on the Nile, based on the book from 1937. I'm Mark Lintonmeyer, and I assure you my questioning will be much gentler than that to which you will be subjected by the police. My name is Sarah Lindbrook. I am a novelist, and for this podcast, I will be relying on my little gray cells. I'm Al from Leeds in the UK, and I was going to do a little gray cells bit too. So I guess I'll just say something about having excellent bow ties. I'm Nicole, the co-host of a podcast, Remakes, Reboots, Revivals. I'm glad to be here again, and I'm more Team Marple than Poirot, so I'm going to have to hold back on saying something clever for now. <laughs> all right, and I will keep the accent to a minimum. Well, this is great, because this is all repeat guests. No new, new voices this time. <laughs> Familiarity. Ah. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So uh, this has been on the agenda for me for quite a while. I have known that this was coming out, and of course it got delayed and delayed and delayed, giving me more time to immerse myself, at least periodically, in Christie, and definitely in the last few weeks. So I'm not going to like list the things, but there's audiobooks readily available on YouTube, <laughs> even the famous ones. So I've gotten through at least a dozen of these things. Can we kind of just go through... Nicole, let's start with you. You know, I talked to you most recently and I already had this planned and you said you had quite a background with this. Give your bona fides. Okay, so one, I'm a cinephile and two, I'm a huge fan of the murder mystery genre. So Agatha Christie's just like, she's perfect for me. She might be one of my favorite dead people ever. I actually started her books from the beginning from Mysterious Affair at Styles. I even wrote like Tommy and Tuppen, some of the other ones. And I've read about 20 Agatha Christie books, including so far Death on the Nile, Murder on the Orient Express, and of course, my beloved Miss Marple. And we actually just recently covered Death on the Nile over at Remakes, Reboots, and Revivals, where we compared the 1978 beloved version to this one. So if you're interested for a compare and contrast too, head on over there. That's good. The 78 one is is one of the things. I saw a couple clips, but like I did not actually get a hold of. There's so much to choose from. You just reach out that anything that's like a little bit difficult to, to latch onto. Sarah Lynn, what's your background with this? You know, I have such a fondness for mysteries, just like Nicole does. I read her books with my dad when I was a kid. And so it was one of those phases that I went through. And I have, I just have such affection for, for the characters and for the, for the mystery genre. And it was fun kind of catching up on, you know, I went and saw the, the new movie in the theater, which was fun. And then I caught the 2017 Murder on the Orient Express. I was able to catch the 1978 Death on the Nile version. I was able to rent it from the library. And I even watched the um, ABC Murders series on, on TV. So it's been kind of fun. And then, of course, I listened to Death on the Nile on Audible as well with Kenneth Branagh narrating. And I thought he did a pretty good job. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes. The other sort of recent media inundation is this series of BBC Sarah Phelps adaptations. So the ABC Murders was, I think, the most recent, but also Ordeal by Innocence was very recent, The Pale Horse, and then there were none, and I think there's another. Anyway, Al, our resident Brit, we have to have a, a token. We wouldn't want to have a, a representation to represent a British product without a British person on here. Go. So I think I'm extremely representative of the standard British person's cultural familiarity with Agatha Christie, which is to say I have seen a lot of the David Suchet Poirot and Murder, She Wrote on Saturday afternoons, oh, sorry, Sunday afternoons. 
uh, Poirot especially perhaps is kind of the defining version of a real staple of British TV entertainment, which is the 90-minute long Sunday afternoon murder mystery TV movie that everyone gathers around in the front room and falls asleep in front of. I'm a huge fan of that genre of TV. It is incredibly easy to watch and incredibly comforting. And that, I think, like a lot of British people, is my main familiarity with uh, Christie's work. Although I have also read a few of the big stories. I reread Death of a Nile in anticipation of this. And I have seen both of the, the new adaptations, the 78 adaptation as well, and some other version of Murder of the Orient Express, I'm, I'm absolutely sure. But the classic, extremely long-running TV series are definitely where I know and love Christie's characters the most from. Sarah Lynn and Nicole, were you even aware of this Poirot, David Suchet as Poirot, long-running? I feel like this is a British product Unlike Doctor Who, unlike, you know, that just didn't make it over here. I wasn't aware of it at all until researching this. It has been going on for 25 years or something, right? (laughs) I think they're on the 13th season, yeah. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure Nicole can tell better than me how many of those are original Christie stories, but I I think they've done a lot of them. Yeah, I actually, uh, I have watched a bunch of them. They're on YouTube. Totally for free, Mm -hmm. which is one fantastic. The Suchet Death on the Nile was the first version I saw directly after I read it. And they started off, the first couple of seasons are like the short stories and they're usually like an hour long. And then later on, they do the books, like the full novels and they're more like full movies. So it's it's fantastic. And they do it as chronologically as they can, which is great. Hastings is in the first couple ones and then he kind of fades away as, you know, rightly so. so. <laughs> the thing about the TV shows, which just thinking about it recently really impressed me is that it took them nine seasons to get to Murder on the Orient Express. And can you imagine any TV show these days waiting nine seasons, like doing Poirot and waiting nine seasons to get to the most famous story? That is amazing. Very patient. Very patient, really (laughs) focusing on that character development too, which is fantastic. I only watched the premiere of that Poirot show, was excited about that the guy who plays Hastings, Hugh Fraser, is the guy that reads most of the audiobooks that I could get a hold of. like So that is sort of the voice of the Agatha Christie male avatar, whatever, to me. So that was kind of neat, just actually seeing the guy. It seemed a little too much like, I know you're saying, Al, that this was like TV comfort food, but I already did that. You know, I'll just watch Monk or something if I really want to do more of that. I, I don't know. It seemed a little redundant of things I'd already experienced in the world. And uh, I guess that's sort of a, a question about adapting these things, right? So we've got these prestige film versions and we're going to try to put a decent budget into it and get all these stars versus a lot of these TV things. You know, it seems like whoever controls the rights to Agatha Christie stuff has not been that careful. You know, it's like, you want to make a Christie thing? Go ahead. And so the quality between them and the budgets among them are wildly varying. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's a cerebral genre you got to wonder, like, do we even really need a budget or big stars for this? Or do we just need something that is sort of authentic? Do we kind of want to take a stab at, let's not do any spoilers for at least the first 30 minutes here, but at the different approaches in adapting these, like how this Kenneth Branagh one relates to the other things you've seen and which you prefer, what are the defining characteristics? Who wants to start on that? One thing I noticed with the latest Death on the Nile is like we know his backstory now, you know, like we get and no spoilers, but we're getting into that seems like the recent adaptations, we're starting to learn about 
his past. And I don't know that we really needed that. <laughs> you could spoil the first five minutes of the movie. Definitely. That's not a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> but do we need to know like how he got the mustache, you know, why he got the mustache and that he had served in World War One, and And even that backstory differed from the backstory from ABC Murders. It's like, pick your backstory for, for this character. But I didn't know that I needed to know that about him. It's, it seemed like we started in such a heavy place with that movie when I didn't really necessarily want to be there. I think that's a really interesting example of what I thought was the big problem with the Branagh adaptation, which also, also speaks to what Mark was talking about, which is it's really not clear why Branagh thought that he needed to remake this film. So was it just to get a modern version of like a really opulent, swanky version of that like comforting murder mystery genre film? If so, then that makes some of the other choices in the film confusing, not least the idea that we needed to like delve into Poirot's backstory, or was the intention to try and dig more into Poirot as a character, he's kind of thinly drawn in the original source material, which isn't a problem. That's just what those novels are like. But then if that was the intention, then that also was only really done in a very shallow and spotty way through the film. So it seemed like he was trying to do maybe too many things and none of them really in a focused way. When I look at both films, I really think of them as like a cinematic historic context. And, you know, Mark, you raised a really interesting question was like, do we need a big budget and a big star? And I think that maybe in the 70s we did, you know, historically speaking, it was hard. Hollywood and the movies were struggling in the 60s to get people to leave their houses now that TV was a thing. And they were just trying to do these big cast, like cinemascope, you know, we're going to go all over the world, around the world in 80 days kind of movies. And that just kind of became a thing that people got used to kind of like comfort watch. And after Murder on the Orient Express in 1974 did so well, obviously it went down that path again in 1978. But you know, with Jaws coming out in 75 and Star Wars coming out in 77, things changed. And actually, after Peter Ustinov did the original Death on the Nile, he did two more and each one made less and less money. And then they did an Agatha Christie Miss Marple adaptation with Angela Lansbury as Miss Marple and the mirror cracked. And again, considered like a, one of the biggest flops. So at some point, we almost kind of went back to our desires for like these over like huge budget big stars you know like we are now obsessed with like blockbusters of all kinds nowadays i feel like and which is why the 2017 one the murder on the Orient express did so well especially for people 50 plus because it kind of remind it was like this weird nostalgic thing so i look at it as like okay well the reason we get it is nostalgia and also people who want to watch this have read the book and I feel like the new movie didn't really touch on any of those two major factors for the audience, right? Like people who love Poirot and want to see Poirot as they read in the book represented or in other movies, you know, either as Albert Finney did or Peter Yusnoff did, or kind of like for the nostalgia of like the old Hollywood star-studded cast movie. And those two things I was looking forward to, and in some ways it delivered, but in a lot of ways it didn't, especially when you started off with a black and white, <laughs> all quite on the Western front, Pats of Glorious war scene. You get an origin story for his mustache, which I don't know about you guys, but I'm outraged by his mustache. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, that is not a Poirot mustache. I'm sorry. 
<laughs> like, come on. I like this mustache. I liked how just grand in scale it was. I, I had to admire the mustache. But I, I did feel like, because I watched both of the Kenneth Branagh movies back to back in Orin Express. I mean, just from the get go, it felt like everyone was having so much more fun, you know, playing those characters. They were all just hamming it up. I mean, they are all just absolutely eating the scenery. And with the new one, with that, you know, because it started off in Orient Express with kind of a funny scene. And then this one, it was black and white. It was gorgeously shot, of course, but black and white about his backstory. And then it just lent this heaviness to this movie that I thought, oh man, you know, I really did not have as much fun even watching the, these two new versions. I did not have as much fun with this new one. And I, I don't know if it's going to mean that he's going to get another chance to make another one of these. Yeah. And it's interesting too, because I, I really felt like he was going for a hangout movie kind of style thing. He changed a big thing, which is that they all don't happen to like conveniently be on the Karnak. They were all invited and that worked and they were all there to kind of like party enough champagne to fill the Nile. And so we're supposed to be like in party mode with these people, but it just, I don't know, like after a while, I think he almost focused too much on not only the, you know, the hangout, but all the other characters' story that he ended up actually not really focusing on the mystery. I think a lot of people, at least in my theater, kind of left that movie knowing exactly who committed the murder because they didn't establish anyone else properly enough to be a proper suspect. To say really quick about the 1978 one, it is currently available. It was just made available on a streaming platform called the Criterion Channel. It's a very hard to get movie. So if anyone is interested, just maybe get a 14-day free trial and you could check out the 1978 film. But that film spent almost too much time establishing everyone else as a suspect. But it put the mystery first. I felt like this film did not put the mystery first. I don't know, maybe I might be alone in that, but they didn't really spend that much time focusing on like, okay, who could it be? Here are all the different reasons as to why it could be these people. You know, there's one scene where Lynette Ridgway is like, I feel like everyone here is against me and she's looking at people. But I'm like, I don't know why you feel against Jennifer Saunders. Like, why do you feel threatened by Jennifer Saunders or Annette Bening's character? Like, it, I don't know. Part of that I agree with very, very strongly, which is that I don't, they didn't put the mystery first. Is, but I felt when I was watching it, the thing that was getting in the way of the mystery was spending too much time on the, on the, the characters, so on the secondary characters. So it's interesting to hear you say that you thought that they were underdeveloped as well. They were but underdeveloped, thought, yeah. Exactly. It's both. In terms of the mystery, they were underdeveloped. Their own side story is a lot there. But what about the mystery? What they had to do with Lynette Ridgway in particular, yeah. Yeah. So I wonder if Christie had to write so many of these things that it's kind of like Stephen King, that like, okay, I'm a horror writer, fine. But I'm going to try to write these slice of life, small town, like concentrate on the characters and their emotional lives. And fine, there'll be some werewolf or some crap stuffed in there. At least parts of his career, I felt like that's what he'd done. And I, I see that in some of Christie's writing, especially this whole like Marple. You know, the reason I'm such a good detective is because I observed, I grew up in a small English town and I observed human nature. And so, so much time for the first half of almost all these movies is spent on just people talking to each other and having conversations and establishing relationships. I watched Evil Under the Sun, the one right after this with Peter Ustinov as uh, Poro from uh, 81, I believe, 80 or 81. Yeah, the whole first half of that movie is, I feel like if you're being faithful to Christie, 
then it's pretty boring for the first half. Like it's really like if you didn't know there was a murder coming, you would be like, what am I even watching here? It's just some people having their relationships in a very low stakes way. But because you know there's a murder coming, then you could be pretty impatient about could the murder just come now? So I feel like in these movie adaptations, if they want to be exciting, if they want to make it not like Evil Under the Sun, which was, or some of these low stakes TV versions, like then you have to put a lot of ominous music. You have to do something like this World War I introduction or just something to like put some energy. You have to seriously deviate from her text. And I guess that's overall like, you know, it's strange that it's not like a lot of her characters just spend a lot of time thinking inwardly. Like it's, it's mostly external. It's them having conversations with each other. There's usually a, a sidekick or some, you know, some of the detectives. The detective is talking to her, more than one detectives that are talking. So it seems like it should be very easy to adapt these things. But at the same time, the pacing is often pretty slow so that you could like have the detective and the the psychic sit down multiple times. Like, okay, what do we know? So I feel like Murder on the Orient Express, this latest adaptation, it seemed completely out of nowhere that like, I will just at the very end, I will tell, here's the entire story. Whereas in the book, one thing was discovered, you know, it sort of brought in this past family that had undergone a tragedy and then was establishing people's relationship one at a time. And it wasn't just like, I am pulling this all out of my ass in the last second. I do not envy anyone who has to adapt any of these books for the screen because there's always so many more characters in the book that you have to keep straight. And it's just as a reader, if you're attracted to those types of stories, you go into it because there is a type of formula to most of them, you know, especially these cozy mysteries like the Miss Marples, you know, they're going to have a formula to it. And that's why readers return to those types of books again and again and again, just like readers who love romance novels. They know what the, the tone and the, the rhythm of those stories should take. But for screen, it's, so difficult. I can't even imagine trying to cut down, you know, I mean, no wonder he's going to be putting in some sort of a backstory so that there's something that a movie going audience, which is different than Christie's readership, is going to latch on to, you know, because a reader, a Christie reader is going to have that patience, whereas a movie going audience, a wider movie going audience may not. Adapting from one medium to another is always so tricky, especially when you're adapting it into film. Because a lot of times I think what the films get wrong is that they try and be too faithful and they don't necessarily adapt it. They just put the, either the book or the stage musical or whatever on screen. And it's like, well, no, we're in a movie. You, kinda, you do have to change some things and, and make things flow in terms of movie sense, not book sense. You know, like Gone with the Wind is so faithful to that book that it can get kind of boring. And I think that it's interesting because if you look from like the 78, Death on the Nile in 74, but more so I think the Death on the Nile, it's so faithful. It's, it's like two and a half hours and it does kind of drag a bit. Like Mark says, like, okay, well, when's the murder going to happen? Now this one, now we're in a day and age where we adapt almost too much, where we take so many liberties <laughs> with the source material to the point where it's almost kind of unrecognizable. So it's weird because Hollywood, and for me, hasn't really found a nice balance. I mean, sometimes they have, there's some great adaptations. But now we're kind of like in this day and age where we're taking too many liberties. You know, for me, one of the biggest things was changing some fundamental characteristics of who Poirot is. I think that was one of my biggest gripes with this film. I didn't really care that everyone was doing an accent, you know, like, okay, sure, make Jennifer Saunders do an American accent, make uh, Army Hammer do an English one, Gal Gadot doing whatever she was doing. But turning Poirot 
into kind of like a what I would call an emo sad boy. It was just kind of like, <laughs> it was just so unnecessary. And I didn't even mind all the other book is fine and changing uh, like Salome. That was, that's cool. I'm not a purist to that, but like I'm here for Poirot. This is not Poirot. And it's not even adapting Poirot. It's kind of changing him. So I don't know. Maybe I might be alone there. I'm kind of, I'm like more angry than I should be about it. <laughs> I was just angry. They got but, rid of Tom Bombadil. I mean, that. Right, <laughs> he had that character arc. He has an actual character arc. Whereas I don't in the books, he wasn't, he was just was who he was, you know? I mean, he was a fuddy duddy. He probably had OCD tendencies. He had a good sense of humor. He was always right. But to see a whole character arc in one movie, I was like, this movie is not about you. It's about the plot. It's about the murder, you know? That actually kind of pissed me off too. Is there a character arc though, or does the movie just try and fool us into thinking that there was a character arc? Because what is the significance of, so Poirot's character arc is like, he's had, we found out he's got a wife. Fine. I know he's not officially gay in the stories that he's occasionally has a couple of romantic interests with women. But for myself, I really want Poirot to be basically gay. So this purported character arc in the story is he's, he see about his backstory. He gets chewed out at one point by an up to that point extremely sympathetic character who calls him out for being too clever and self-important, which was just so jarring because like Kenneth Branagh, are we not supposed to be on your side? Why are you telling the audience that you're a fraud or whatever else it was? And then at the end, he shaves his mustache off, which signifies growth somehow. I don't understand. Well, yeah. Does anyone have any better idea of what the, the art was supposed to be? I think so. I think like shaving off his mustache was him being more vulnerable and like accessing that part of him that he hid away, which I don't know. I agree there. I felt like his mustache had a character arc, but he himself <laughs> didn't. <laughs> um, but that's the thing. Like, I agree with everything that you said, Sarah, about like who he is in the books. But I also think he's kind of a dick, you know, like he's notoriously rude to Hastings, who just isn't as clever, as insightful as he wishes to be. And he kind of doesn't have like patience for certain type of people. I mean, he has a lot of patience in some ways. So when he started shedding a tear over a book, it was just so uncharacteristically Poirot that it just like at that point, you know, the movie lost me. Which is kind of a shame because there were some good performances here, uh, particularly the person who played Jackie. Emma Mackey, that's right, yeah. And she felt one of the more authentic performances. But it's almost like now with superhero movies being such competition, you know, it's kind of like his mustache is becoming his mask, you know, and him trying to reveal the man behind the mask. And it was just such an unnecessary element to it. Or it's like they're trying to make him like James Bond or something like the latest James Bond movies have been heavy too. And, you know, and you slowly get to know their backstory or even like Sherlock Holmes also, like it's this heaviness that we didn't necessarily think we needed to know. <laughs> so you prefer it'd be like old Sheldon or, you know, like do it as a straight comedy with a sociopathic character. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah, I actually think that's a really good example with James Bond because there's been so many different actors and so many different interpretations. And when Timothy Dalton stepped into the role in the 80s, he only did two films and he played it so serious. In fact, License to Kill is him out for revenge for Felix Leiter. And everybody looked at him and said, who is this? This isn't James Bond. And yet now we're in a phase where we kind of like the heavy-handed James Bond. you know. So maybe it's also right now we're just not in the mood for this type of Poirot. Maybe 
maybe we will be in the future. But, you know, interestingly enough, my partner that I do my podcast with, we covered Murder on the Orient Express and we both did not really enjoy the Browner one. But he actually loved the new one. He thought that all of the changes made it fresher and made it kind of more updated for a modern audience. I'm more like old school films. I love the 40s, 50s, 60s. And he's really into today films. And this film is getting a lot of overall good buzz, I think. I mean, there, there are those who don't like it, but there are those who it's really working for. And uh, I do think that like, in some ways it is fulfilling at least some audience desires of just like, you know, ex- escaping to, well, fake Egypt. You know, the 1978 one, they actually shot in Egypt and this one, they just built the boat and everything else is CGI. But actually, I did want to say one thing. In the 1978 film, there's this great scene of Betty Davis sitting on the Karnak and she sees these boys who are following her and they're waving. And she's like, oh, how charming. And then they stop and they moon her. as kind of like this nice fuck you. And the film is almost kind of aware of like the class divide between you know these white privileged people on this boat. This new film is not at all. It actually, in a weird way, lives in this fantasy world where nobody sees class, nobody sees race. You know, they see sex and sexuality. But other than that, like, you know, everyone is just kind of living in a nice bubble. And I'm wondering if, I mean, I don't know, do people like that? I know people love fantasy, you know, but was that also a part that like worked for you guys? I don't know how I feel about that yet. That's really interesting. One of the things I really hated about this film was the tokenistic representation. And I thought that, what what was the name of the the singer? Salome Otterborn. Salome Osborne. I thought she was a really good addition. And because the movie took its time establishing her as a badass and that she got to have a couple of like good interactions with Poirot before she had the big character arc moment that she contributed to towards the end. And because crucially, that provided a good, like, compli- there was a complicated backstory between her and the murder victim for Poirot to kind of get at and reveal and take his time over. I thought that probably worked. But the French and Saunders thing just made me furious. Like, firstly, they clear, they read to me as clearly a lesbian couple from the beginning, but then the, the movie makes it this big, like, gotcha moment. But, like, fine. But the, but the only contribution that that whole relationship has to the plot is that there's a confusing factor. There's a red herring that didn't need to be there anyway, that Poirot can identify as a red herring by outing them in an incredibly upsetting scene as lovers. But then at the end of the film, there's this incredibly long drawn out shot of them walking away from the pier, hand in hand, being openly gay because some people died. So now that's fine, which made me so angry. And what you just pointed out, Nicole, about how unself-aware the film is about all these extremely helpful Egyptian people who are running around making this honeymoon a magical place for all these very literally the richest people in the world to be. It's just mind-blowing what it decided to, to pay attention to and what it didn't. Yeah, it chose to be pretty ignorant and like happily so. A big thing was with the Annette Bedding character, she's made up, so I can't remember her name, but her reason that she doesn't want Book to be with Rosalie is because she doesn't think love is real or it's some absurd reason that she doesn't want her son to get married. Like, why can't we get a realistic portrayal of an older white woman in 1937. Like, we know the real reason why she doesn't want, you know, and like, but the movie didn't want to go there. I I saw the same thing. And I'm so glad that you brought that up. And it, the class stuff, the race stuff was not even addressed. 
you know, and even in the 1978 version, the class stuff is front and center and they do it imperfectly for sure. It was, uh, you know, there were some portrayals that were insensitive, but at least we get an idea that Simon is supposedly marrying above his station. You don't get that sense at all from the Kenneth Branagh version. Yeah. And like people who read Agatha Christie know that she was a bit racist. I mean, it was the 20s. It was the 30s. She was privileged and traveling abroad and she viewed people who lived in these areas a certain way. So like, to me, it's nice to depict a world where everyone's holding hands and, but that's not the world we live in. And that was another one of my major gripes about the 2017 one is they did the same thing where this isn't historically accurate and I don't buy it. And why is the movie just have no time for it? Especially because in this one, they had so much conflict and some of the conflicts just seemed so unrealistic, unrelatable. Hey, let's stop for an ad break. As a listener to my podcast products, I know that you like to really shake things up with regard to your entertainment. And that brings us to the topic of literally shaking things up, shaking your head while you're listening to something and not having your earbuds fall out of your ears. I want to tell you about Raycon. Their everyday earbuds look, feel, and sound better than ever. And there's also an awareness mode that makes you able to hear your surroundings especially well. So you can take Raycons with you wherever you go. Now, they have optimized gel tips for the perfect fit. These earbuds are so comfortable, they will not budge. I can use them while jogging. I can use them to make trips to the grocery store less embarrassing from wearing giant over-ear things and not have people bump into me because I can't tell what's going around around me. Raycons offer eight hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. They've got great audio quality, and you get that audio quality at half the price of other premium audio brands. So it's no wonder Raycon's Everyday Earbuds have over 48,000 five-star reviews. Right now, pretty much pop listeners can get 15% off their Raycon order at buyraycon.com slash pretty. That's buyraycon.com slash pretty to save 15% off Raycons. B-U-Y raycon.com slash pretty. Living in the modern age means often buying things on credit, Maybe having those credit balances following you around month after month, maybe forever. Well, it would be great not to have high interest loans or credit card debt. Through Upstart, you can pay off your existing debt quickly with a personal loan so you can tackle your next big financial goal and you can finally feel like you're getting ahead. So debt consolidation, not a bad idea. I've done it. You should look into your various options. And Upstart is a very convenient one among those options. Upstart knows you're more than just your credit score. So rather than looking at your credit score alone, Upstart's model considers other factors like your income, employment, and other information provided in your loan application to find you a smarter rate for your loan. You can check your rate without impacting your credit score in just five minutes for loans between $1,000 to $50,000. You can even receive funds as fast as one business day after accepting your loan. Find out how Upstart can lower your monthly payments today when you go to upstart.com slash pretty. That's upstart.com slash pretty. Don't forget to use our URL to let them know we sent you. Loan amounts will be determined based on your credit income and certain other information provided in your loan application. Go to upstart.com slash pretty. This seems a good time to announce that we can spoil. (laughs) Since the class thing directly motivates the murder in a way that is not necessarily... I noticed in the book, they kind of made a big deal about how the gall of this woman, who in the movie is portrayed as basically having no flaws that we can see, of just assuming that she can just take her much poorer friend's fiance, that like, oh, I'm just so sparkling and so rich and I can just 
and that they sort of had, were legitimately, both of them, pissed at her for just being such a shitty friend and so entitled. And so, like, that got the seed of, like, why we're going to kill this person. Not merely because, oh, I'm seeing opportunity that I could uh, marry up and I'll murder her. And then, you know, one of the other things is that he's supposed to be really dumb in the book. And so that's why this, his, uh, his ex-girlfriend there, or his, you know, we didn't, don't know, his continuing girlfriend has to be the one who actually plans it. Like, I think that is referred to in some way, but you don't actually see that on the screen other than just the inherent problems in watching Army Hammer and feeling like he is maybe not that smart a person. <laughs> <laughs> Among other things. <laughs> <laughs> you know, now that we're going to spoil it and really talk about that three-way thing, the differences in the approaches of the two films is, I think, important as to why the, the 2022 one didn't really work for me. I mean, it's technically a 2020 film, you know, but it's been two years. In the 1978 one, we spend over an hour establishing Lynette's relationships with everyone. And she's, you know, she's kind of a bitch. I mean, she's spoiled and she just is like, whatever, I do what I want. And you really see the conflict between her and Jackie. You know, you see their friendship in the first scene where they meet and then you, her, you know, following them and being unhinged and just delicious is actually really great. You know, her showing up providing all these Egypt facts. Also, Lynette is very rude to her in the first film where Simon is kind of more sympathetic. He's like, just ignore her. It'll go away. In the new film, Lynette is more sympathetic. And to the point where before she, the last thing she says is she says, I'm not sorry for what I did, but I'm sorry that I hurt you, Jackie. And it brings like tears to Jackie's eyes and stuff. The asshole in this one is Simon. He's like rubbing in Jackie's face that they had sex three times that day. He's the one who's more overly angry by her. And that decision kind of confused me, maybe because they wanted to throw it off that it would be Simon. But that dynamic also didn't really make sense because again... I spoke earlier as to why does Lynette feel like she's got enemies around her? She's way more sympathetic in this one. You know, everyone not liking her, kind of, some of it seems like it's not even her problem. It's not her fault. I don't even know. I mean, I wanted to bring that up because I just thought it was such an interesting switch. And it's not something that was done in the book. It was done in the original film, I thought, pretty effectively. In the new film, it just kind of, I thought, again, more so, they were trying to make it seem like it wasn't Simon. But then, again, they just made it seem even more like it is Simon because he was such a dick. Mm Mm-hmm. Actually, I thought the Gal Gadot version matched the book version of Lynette more than the 1978 version because she was so bitchy. Oh my God. She was the worst friend. She was terrible to Mio Farrow, but that made perfect sense for the Jackie character. But in the book, Pierrot and Jackie have several really intimate kind of scenes. They end up, you know, getting to know each other. And I, was disappointed that I didn't, even though she was more sympathetic in the later movie, I was disappointed that we didn't get to see that relationship. You know, that seemed like kind of a grounding relationship in the book. And I was disappointed I didn't get to see more of that in the movie because that makes that twist at the end just a little deeper. I just essential to, I think, how Christy kept this interesting, writing (laughs) mystery after mystery after mystery, is to have some sort of fairly deep moral conversations. And so in this book, as Sarah Lynn, you were just talking about, you know, it's these, even though he doesn't know that she's planning murder, he knows she's planning something and she's very on the surface, like I'm holding a gun. I'm, I don't know. My life doesn't matter anymore. This, and the fact that he's just like, you know, you can turn around now. It's not too late to abandon this quest. And, you know, so that ends up having more resonance as you find out what the murder 
was and this whole I do not approve of murder. And you know, what made the 1974 murder on the Orient Express good? It's not about Poirot. It's about this situation, this tragedy that this group of characters. So now I'm going to spoil that, that they all did it, <laughs> that they, they're all the murderer and. It lets you like live with these characters. You know, we get something similar at the end of this movie, the new version where they're, you know, all suddenly wearing black and mourning the death of various people as they leave the boat. But I didn't care as much. Yes, people die. That's sad. Like, but that's not the same as the sort of deep meditation on grief or something like that. That I, for someone who is as unpretentious as Christie reputed to be sort of, oh, this is very kind of light surface level drawing room stuff. I'm kind of surprised at how good the psychology is and how easy it is to get that wrong in various film versions. Yeah, that's true. Speaking of that, Sarah Lynn, I think you'd refer to the the alternate, you know, let's these Poirot backstories in the ABC murders. So just these, if we can address these Sarah Phelps versions briefly, I mostly enjoy them, but they are, they do take great liberties to make it really gritty. And so like the pale horse, this one with Rufus Sewell, you know, whereas in the book, the character who's the detective, which is not Poirot, it's not, it's Mark Easterbrook. Anyway, it's just a random character that, but like all these detectives, it's just observing, really. I'm just, uh, I'm curious. I want to get in there. Maybe I have some connection to what's going on. This one makes him a, it's a thriller, like, and that this man is caught at the center of it and he might be suspected and he, you know, kind of to give it more stakes. And so I could see wanting to do that with Poirot as well. And so this ABC Murders version 2018 has its own kind of ridiculous backstory that maybe Poirot has been a fraud all the time. He was never a detective in Belgium. He was something else. And about his, you know, being a refugee from the war which I understand it was Christie's interaction as a nurse with refugees from the war, from Belgium. Like, this is what birthed the character of Poirot. So it's not coming out of entirely nowhere. It is some respect for her own creative process, but it was pretty weird. <laughs> it was pretty weird. Are we spoiling about his backstory or no? Uh, sure, why not? That he was a priest <laughs> first? <laughs> I don't know. Who let people die somehow, yes. (laughs) Yeah, the ABC murders. I don't know. Did anybody see The Fall with Gillian Anderson in that series? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. This series had such fall vibes for me. It was that kind of, you know, serial killer. And and I'm a sucker for a serial killer show. But oh, my God, talk about heavy and backstory and John Malkovich. I just... I did not really enjoy it. I, I'm actually really sorry I didn't see, and then there were none. I'm really sorry I made the choice to see ABC Murders and not, <laughs> and then there were none because John Malkovich just was such a weird fit for Poirot. But yeah, and then the whole priest thing, I was like, nope, I think I'm, I think I'm out. Actually, Tony Randall and uh, starred as Poirot in the 60s in the ABC Murders. So if you also want to see an interesting Poirot, you should check out uh, that one. Tony Randall. Yeah, I just I just watched the first five minutes of that. And he actually is like, today I'm going to be playing Poirot. And he's like putting on the costume. Like this is as yeah. theatrical and goofy as you could be. And then, you know, watched him with his like fake toupee, you know, to make it look like he's balding when he actually, I guess, wasn't, you know, fussing over his suit and talking to his tailor about he's gaining weight. Excellent. Like this seemed very much in, in the Poirot character, but like, I, I didn't want to sit through that. Well, and there was also just the idea of, 
this character. And actually, I, I didn't mind that. He was an aging Poirot who was past his prime, who was no longer as respected and famous as he once was. And, and actually, I thought that was kind of an interesting choice. But I just thought John Malkovich was so miscast in this. I thought, oh, God, I wonder what this would look like if we had had a different actor in the lead role. Anybody else see any of the other Sarah Phelps things? Have any comments? I, I watched the And Then There Were None, which is a 2015. It is star-studded. It's a pretty good version. But again, the one significant change, and I'm not like revealing the end of it or anything like that, is the premise is it's, it's a bunch of people who have committed a murder at some point, trapped on an island, and they're being killed off one by one. And in this Sarah Phelps adaptation, they all definitely committed a murder in a very direct way. And there's, you know, flashbacks and things, much like with the ABC murders with Poirot's, where, where you see them, as opposed to, oh, here's a guy who, he's a military commander, he found out one of his underlings was sleeping with his wife. And so he sends him off to be killed. But there's sort of something ambiguous about that. Like, people send people off, you know, in war all the time. Whereas in this past version, he just shoots him in the head. <laughs> like, there's nothing questionable about that. And so, again, it was sort of the subtleties of merely letting someone die. Or, you're, you know, you should consider yourself responsible for that death, even though the law doesn't recognize it. And maybe in, your, in the daylight hours, you can call your conscience clean. But like, there's an actual question about you know what is murder that this new version just ignores for the sake of, I want these characters to be actually evil. I did see the, and then there were none one, and I, I read the book. I do think it's probably like her Sergeant Peppers. Like, it's just her, her best. And it's one of her darkest. I definitely think it's one of her most effective twists at the end. So they definitely wanted to convey that darkness in this one. But I do think that they also went a little bit overboard because... Agatha Christie is never just, well, I don't know if you guys would agree, but I've never really been disturbed by her. It gets dark, but at the end of the day, I don't ever feel like I'm reading anything that's kind of like goes too dark. It's always somewhat kind of cozy and enjoyable. And I'm personally just a big fan of that balance. So sometimes, and that's the thing, a lot of film and television, they tend to go a little too gritty these days to make it like more appealing to get too dark. That's the one thing I, I've seen as kind of a trend. I didn't see the ABC murders mainly because of the John Malkovich casting. I was just like, I don't know how I feel about that after Kenneth Branagh. So I don't know. Should I check it out as a Christie uh, reader or will it just enrage me? I don't know. It sounds like it might. <laughs> Go ahead. I enjoyed that more than some of the other ones. <laughs> I saw the Suchet version of the ABC murders during my binge this week and that's really good. But interestingly surprising, like totally weird because of how dark that story is compared to the rest of them. So it's interesting to hear the full comparison for the Phelps thing. So maybe that's then more appropriate venue for that story than the David Suchet character. In terms of the, the grittiness, though, I think it's, that's interesting because Poirot for me is, all, is often sad, but never grim. Death on the Nile is really good. Something this, the, the Branagh film, I'm going to say a couple of nice things about the Branagh Death on the Nile. So the one, one thing is, the final scene, the death where there's, I guess, is a murder-suicide of the culprits. I thought that was that was quite affecting, and I thought that was a good version of of that scene. Unrelatedly, but something I just have to say, I don't know how Branagh managed it, but someone managed to direct Russell Brand in a way which made him not <laughs> phenomenally irritating on screen, and that is an achievement. <laughs> but yet underused yeah. or something like I didn't. Somehow I underused. did not realize it was him. Until I saw in the credits, like that's how once it was pointed out. But like, why have him in there if he's not going to do his thing? I don't know. 
That's so funny. Yeah, my husband didn't either. I knew going in that he was in it. But yeah, he really uh, played it straight. <laughs> yeah, I thought yeah. he did a good job. I'll piggyback off that to add to some positivity about the, the Brano one. I feel like Christy, you know, she reveals more about her beliefs in her books and she realizes, you know, she's really into science and rationality and groundedness. She's such a Virgo like that. And she always has a theme that carries it over. Murder in the Order Express was more about justice and Death on the Nile being more about lust and whatnot. And the Brana one really did make everyone's story and the overall theme about love. That's why they introduced this whole backstory in, in a weird way about you know, either all forms of love, unrequited love, forbidden love, secret, you know, destructive love. And I saw that he was going for that theme. And Christy herself does tend to like to have overall themes for her novels. So I, I did appreciate that touch that he gave or attempted to give. Yeah. Yeah. I liked that whole idea of Jackie as a woman who loves too much. I like that he did that. He brought that to the forefront as well. Yeah, I feel like the script adaptations were generally quite good in that there are things in the book that made me cringe. So to spoil something from the book, the Sophie Otterborn character, who is more accurately to the book, played in the old version by drunken Angela Lansbury, if you could picture that. She was so good. <laughs> Just seeing clips of that, that, that seemed <laughs> quite delicious. But then she's the third one to get killed. And it's because she bursts into another interview that's going on. And she's like, I have discovered who the murderer is and I am just about to tell it to you and I will tell it to you in a second. And then <laughs> she's shot because somehow the real murderer has to signal to his girlfriend, hey, there's a person that's about to reveal you should go and get the gun out of a guy's cabin. And so she somehow has time to go do that and shoot this character before she just reveals like, when you are revealing to the detective who the murderer is, can you just lead with that, please? Can you, can you not? <laughs> but she was a novelist. Like, uh -huh. she wanted to tell her story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she had to have that flair. <laughs> or having the character, you know, they refer to the maid character as having her marriage was broken up by the murder victim. And it turns out in the book that one of the characters is, is actually the, it is that very ex-fiancé who is in a disguise. So having a character that is referred to and is actually there in a disguise, like, <laughs> come on, just thank you for not doing that to me. Yes, true, true. <laughs> I would say that the David Suchet Death on the Nile is probably my favorite portrayal of Lynette Ridgway. It's a very young Emily Blunt and she just plays her as a, a total... The whole cast of nice is... Yeah. Superb. Yeah, and she's captivating. Yeah, she absolutely. is. She's very good. But yeah. So where did you find that version? All on YouTube. It's wonderful. Yeah. If you type like Poirot S1 E3, like, you know, they'll all come up. And I think most of them are fantastic. <laughs> Probably not strictly legal. There are, yeah. there are no, definitely not. <laughs> the BritBox channel through uh, Amazon Prime. That's where I watched yep. it. Yeah. BritBox. Oh, yeah. Okay. Well, I guess, yeah. Just after watching only the first one of that and feeling like, huh, this is like ho hum TV, I was not expecting, as apparently they got way better than by. Yeah, no, they did. They did. Yeah. All right. And he was voted as like the best one. I don't know if I sent that article around, but he was voted as basically kind of the quintessential. Yeah. Because he had 25 the, years to do it and he could really like sink into the role and explore yeah. it. And, yeah. He's why Kenneth Branagh has the big mustache because he has to be not David Suchet. <laughs> this is true. He has to make it his own. That's a good point. Yeah. So did anyone else watch this? I, I'm thinking this is alternate history, Agatha Christie popularizations. 
that the same year that this uh, Murder on the Orient Express, which I knew all about, Crooked House, a Glenn Close film, also star-studded, came out, I guess, to no acclaim. I hadn't heard of it until just doing a, a search on uh, my streaming services for what are Agatha Christie adaptations. And it's not terrible. Anyway, did anybody else sit through that? <laughs> did you read the book? I had not. Okay. I guess the only... It was okay. It was like, you know, I kind of forgot about it. I guess... Did anyone else here read the book? I don't want to spoil it, but the murder is very surprising and the portrayal of the murderer in the book, this character is very ugly <laughs> in the book, like almost like hideously ugly and, and is very not pleasant. And they didn't go that route. They tried to make that character more sympathetic. And I thought that I kind of was looking forward to that portrayal in the crooked house, but they decided not to go that way. So that was a little disappointing. And I think not as effective when you find out who the murderer is. It's actually one of her more interesting books where she goes there. I would recommend it as a read. Well, and interesting as uh, that it is not one of the ones that has, and then there were none as sui generis in that it is, the whole point is there's no grown up there to solve the mystery and <laughs> detached observers but in this one, the, the detective played by Jeremy Iron's son in the film is purposefully flavorless, kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if purposefully or that's just the way it came off, but like does not get to chew the scenery much at all. You know, there's a sort of a romantic subplot involving him and one of the characters. But for the most part, like it's, it is about the mystery and about the house. And all these, you know, Gillian Anderson and Christina Hendricks and Julian Sands. Yes, uh, just a lot of people packed in there just to like admire this weird family dynamic. And the best scene in it is like they're just around the dinner table sniping at each other. <laughs> That's, you can yeah, probably just yeah. watch that by itself. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I think deliberately flavorless is maybe the best backhanded compliment I've ever heard for, a, <laughs> for an actor. <laughs> so boring, it must have been on purpose. <laughs> I meant to do that. You know, when I was kind of started just reading randomly that I was like, what audiobooks do not have a lot of holds on them from the library? And so one of them was The Big Four, which apparently is a pretty early Poirot one. But he like takes on the Illuminati that she got bored pretty quickly of having just like, there's going to be a bunch of people in a house and one of them is a killer of like, no, this is going to be the whole world crime syndicate is run by four evil people. And it's a series of short stories where he's running into the one who is a master of disguise and the one who is uh, some sort of Machiavellian, Eastern, pretty ethically offensive character. And anyway, interesting how maybe that was because it was early in her career and she could, I want to keep moving in some direction, but by her last last half of her career, it's like, no, I got to just settle down and to do, like, this is what the people want. I don't know, Do you, are you guys aware of like other things where she wrote something that was not a mystery or wrote, you know tried to get out of her box in some way by breaking the plot? Not her, but like Sherlock Holmes was taking on the Ku Klux mm -hmm. Klan within four stories, I mm -hmm. think. So it's just not unusual for, for things to get weird quickly. <laughs> or sometimes it can just be an author who's trying to find their voice, you know, early on, seeing what lands with readers and then kind of getting into a groove. Yeah. After she wrote her first novel, she introduced other characters and none of them were just clicking as much as Poirot, but she was constantly writing short stories published in magazines and newspapers. And then after a while, she begrudgingly accepted that all that people want is Poirot. She actually hated him by the end. She's like, I don't look forward to writing this egghead. I think she said something like that. Don't quote me on it. But she, she despised him after a while. But yeah, that was the period where she was just writing short stories and hoping to retire Poirot. I learned that she wrote his death 
story relatively early in her career just because she wanted to make sure she had a good life story. Do you know if that the context of that was her wanting to kill her off soon or does her kill him off soon or? Yeah, I mean, Murder of Roger Ackroyd's her fourth book. And by that one, he's retired. And she had to kind of like bring him out of retirement because people just didn't want that to stop. So yeah, she did have every intention. But after a while, she was like, just release it when I'm fucking dead and I can't write this guy anymore. So Murder of Roger Ackroyd is a phenomenally interesting story. There's, no one else will get to write a story like that. Yeah, the Suchet adaptation is actually one of the ones that interestingly didn't work for me because the book, the dynamic and what, she's going for it. It's just, it works so well on the page. You know, I'm really interested in seeing an adaptation that can make what happened in the page work in film and TV. I think that might be an impossible adaptation. Yeah, I think so. Because it is about the, yeah. but it is about the narrator's perspective in a way that the others are maybe not. We can say that much. That's not, I haven't read that book, but I heard about what is distinctive about it and I won't spoil it, but <laughs> it told me that much. Oh no, that's <laughs> devastating. You got to read it. <laughs> <laughs> maybe as a final topic here just to get out of here so it's surprising that this genre still feels fresh at all and that she wrote so many books you know 85 plus of these things and I don't know I feel like I don't necessarily know who the killer is before she intends me to <laughs> like it's not necessarily like wait till the last minute like you're with, you're with him they have, again, multiple sit-downs of let's go through the clues. And so you could figure something out, like with Murder on the Orient Express. Oh, here's a note. And it's written by 10 different handwritings. <laughs> like that's revealed in the first couple pages. Like to give you a clue of how this is going to come out. Crazy. So how, how do you feel about this as, as representing or uh, you know, the future of the mystery genre? I'm ready to be massively corrected on this, but what always seems to mean to be Christie's calling card is that she creates a story where everyone could have done it. And the storytelling is in describing how it's perfectly plausible that 15 different people in the story could have committed this murder psychologically. Like in Poirot's case, it's always psychological. And, and in my head, that was her major contribution to the mystery genre was making the stories about motive rather than how it could be done. That's certainly not the way murder mysteries, modern murder mystery stories go. We brought up the fall earlier and it's very much these days. It seems to me that the appeal of the like murder mystery thriller is about the psychology of the killer and of the, the detective, right? And it's always about bringing these two forces of nature together somehow. I don't know if we'll get new versions of the lots of people sitting in a country house story. Maybe that's why we need Christie adaptations forever, because it's not a kind of story that people are going to write original versions of anymore. And we got Knives Out, you know, which is a semi-comic take on, but like pretty faithfully <laughs> rendered. A good story is a good story. I mean, I can't see people who want to, filmmakers and TV writers, this is a well, I think that writers will continue to come back to just because the storytelling is so good. And if you can reinvent something, even though that some attempts are less successful than others, I think it's really exciting to take a fresh look at these stories and, and update them and modernize them. I think that's exciting. And I, I'm all in. I'm all for it, even if it's not something that is wholly successful. So, you know, I guess the fate of the murder mystery genre or, or where it is in our history uh, or in our pop culture today, you know, it's such an old fashioned genre. I think at least people associate with it. But I think the nostalgia, oddly enough, of it is one of the 
the greatest things about it today. You know, people can attend murder mystery parties. You could go to any store and get like a murder mystery kit. There's interactive live murder mystery shows, and they're always usually set in the early 20th century. Clue, one of the best and most addictive games. And then as far as her contribution to the actual genre and, and film and television, Murder, She Wrote, my go-to cozy show. That's like Miss Marple and, you know, Poirot and all in one. Like even like at the end of The Thin Man in 1934, even though I'm pretty sure that is Dashiell Hammett, they're all sitting around a table and he's just psychologically saying why everyone could do it. And that to me is so characteristically Christy. And the idea of sitting everyone down and being like the bedras, what of you, is just such a classic trope now of the genre. So I, I think that she's just a big part of the reason as to why Murder Mysteries is kind of like now this thing that we can all play and, and have fun with, you know, because like I said too, she never gets too dark. It's always kind of cozy and fun with her. And I actually don't like books that are like too dark and too gritty because I'm like, no, where, where are my, my curmudgeon characters? You know, like that to me is part of why I love uh, murder mysteries so much because of that nice balance she provides. So, and I think that, yeah, the nostalgia for that and I think is apparently it's alive and well. You know, it didn't make as much money, but it was number one at the box office. So that's very positive and refreshing for me, at least. The Mousetrap is still the longest running play in the world and will probably continue to be for a long time. Look at that. And she's like the best selling author, I think, still of all time behind like Shakespeare and yeah, the Bible, Shakespeare, the Bible yep. I think is what they say. She's number yeah. three. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you to all of you and thank you listeners. We will uh, maybe share a few more anecdotes about things that we read or other related thoughts in the uh, supporter only after talk. You can get that at patreon.com slash pretty much pop. So long, everybody. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, if you're interested for more murder mystery content, I say read a Miss Marple book and watch some of those Margaret Rutherford films from the 60s because Margaret Rutherford is just a gem. And, and if you don't know who she is, check her out. She's the best. Thanks so much for having me, Mark. It was fun. Thanks a lot, guys. Lovely to speak. Five. I've got to jump off. All right, well, I've got to go finish thanks, my work. Thanks, supporters. But thank thanks you for to both of you. Talk to you later. Thank you. Bye. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Bye. Get more Pretty Much Pop at prettymuchpop.com. Get bonus content for every episode at patreon.com slash prettymuchpop. Pretty Much Pop is part of the Partially Examined Life podcast network, and it's also presented by openculture.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.